right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do. Ken, do you still say that every week? Awesome. You can turn to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to just be looking at verses 28 through 30. I'm sure some of you are familiar with Jesus' words here. But just by way of context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 25. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Father, we pray this morning as we come together as your people that your Holy Spirit would take your truths and apply them deeply to our hearts. We pray that our our restless souls, distracted by so many things that we carry in here on our minds and hearts this morning, we pray that they would find rest in you. God, we thank you that you've not left us wondering about who you are or the way of salvation or how to unburden our souls, but you have spoken clearly in your sufficient, authoritative, and necessary word. And so we pray in these next few moments for your grace to, uh, to grow in understanding, and we give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 1678, a man named John Bunyan, a pastor in England, published The Pilgrim's Progress. Now this is one of the most, it's one of the best-selling books in the history of the English language. Um, it has been translated more times than we can count, and just by a show of hands, I think it's going to be a lot, how many of you have heard of The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Okay, good. Now, how many of you have either read the original version or one of those weird cartoon versions or done the children's book with your kids just by a show of hands? Okay, less is understandable, but you understand the story. I just want to see uh, where we are with understanding this. But The Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. Uh, and, and Bunyan wrote it as an allegory of the Christian life. And what that means is every character, every place has a direct spiritual parallel to the Christian life. And he's, he's very obvious. He's not trying to confuse anybody. So the, the main character's name is Christian. He represents the Christian. And he is on this journey. He is leaving the city of destruction, which means fleeing from sin and the coming judgment of God. And he is headed to the celestial city which is heaven and eternity with God. 
And he is looking for the narrow gate that leads to life that represents entering a relationship with Jesus and walking on that journey. And the book is about that journey of Christian's life. And therefore, it's about the Christian life. And there's something you notice when you meet Christian at the beginning of the book. You notice two things. He is holding God's law in his hand. And the second thing you notice is that he has a very large burden strapped to his back. And that burden represents, Bunyan is trying to send the message that Christian is under the burden of his guilt and consciousness of his sin. And the law, the book in his hand, shows him that he has the burden on his back. And I love that illustration because it's a metaphor, someone wearing a burden on their back, that each and every one of us can relate to this morning, right? The, the, the biggest burden that every single person must consider and deal with is the burden of guilt and consciousness of our sin before a holy God. But we can even expand that metaphor this morning and consider all of the many burdens that we are wearing today as we walk into this place. Maybe it's a, a relational burden. Things aren't going well in a friendship or a, or a marriage, and it's weighing heavy on you. Maybe it's a financial burden. How am I going to pay that bill? How are we going to make this worth, work? Maybe it's a, a health burden, physical or, or mental health, or, or just the burden of what is my purpose in life, or a, a parenting burden, moms and dads. All of us understand what it means to bear these burdens. And as we come to Matthew chapter 11, we're we're doing something I think that's different than what you've been doing. You've been walking through Revelation, and you've probably been taking big chunks of text, though I know Ken, so not too big, right? And you've been working through these things. Well, we're going to do the opposite this morning. We're going to take a small phrase, a small statement from Jesus over three verses, and we're going we're gonna to mine it for its depth. But in order to understand this, we've got to Zero back, uh, we got to zoom out for a minute and consider the context of Matthew chapter 11 because the context of Matthew 11 is actually one of burden. So if you're looking down at your Bibles, go back and look at verse 2. Now, when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Matthew 11 begins with the greatest man who has ever lived, according to Jesus, bearing the burden of doubt. He's in prison. He eventually will, will be beheaded. And he is doubting whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. He's wearing a burden. As we go on through chapter 11, we don't have time to read all of it, but we see that there's the burden of opposition to Jesus that his disciples bear. By, by worldly standards at this time, Jesus' ministry is not successful. People are rejecting him. They have seen him do the miracles. Maybe you have friends like that who say, if I could just see God perform a miracle, then I would believe. That's not how it works. <laughs> they have watched Jesus perform miracles. They have heard Jesus, the God-man, preach, and they've rejected him. So there's this burden of opposition to Jesus. The disciples looking around wondering, is this really going to turn out the way we thought? And then there is the burden of those people 
who, who are under God's wrath. We are reading a very welcoming verse here, but let's not forget, right before this, Jesus pronounces woe and says, the burden of judgment is on you who reject Christ. The context of Matthew 11 is burdens. And the the question of Matthew 11, and the question of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and the question for you and I as we consider our own burdens this morning is, is this, from these burdens. As we come to the end of this chapter, we hear Jesus answer with a resounding yes. There is relief from these burdens. When we come to Christ for the first time and continually, we find eternal rest for our burdened souls. That's what these three verses are telling us. And so I want to work through these in four parts. We're going to pick this statement from Jesus apart. First, we see the invitation. I don't have any slides, sorry, but if you're taking notes, number one, the invitation, come to me. Second, we see the offer, or sorry, second, we see the recipients, all who labor and are heavy laden. Third, we see the offer, I will give you rest. And fourth and finally, we see the motivation of Jesus. I am gentle and lowly in heart. So first, the invitation, those first three words in verse 28, come to me. First thing to note here, this invitation is to a person. It might seem obvious, but let's consider it for a moment. Jesus is not inviting us or his hearers to a moral reform program as if he's a sort of spiritual, uh, personal trainer. He's not inviting his hearers or us to a political party or to a denomination or, or to some sort of social event or even to Christendom. Though following Jesus has implications in, in all of those areas. But he is saying, come to me. It's an invitation, not to a thing, but to a person. And this is something that we, we can't overlook. Our church has New Branch's thumbprints all over it because New Branch is so invested in me and our family and my fellow pastor, Clint, were cut from the same cloth. We love the Bible. We love theology. We love the Puritans, right? We love all of those things. And here's the danger for churches that love doctrine and theology and expositional preaching, The danger is that we can exalt those things above Jesus when those things are meant to exalt Jesus, right? So good, solid theology is like the frame of a picture. A good frame accents the photograph. Christ is the photograph, right? So Jesus is saying, you come to me. Not to this church service, not to this event, not to this social club. Come to me. Now, who is this Jesus then? We have to consider who he is. Well, he's fully God. First, he's not just some good moral teacher. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Preexistent, eternal, divine. 
That's who this Jesus is. This Jesus also became a man. Later on in John chapter 1, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That language is tabernacled among us, just like the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Or as one paraphrase says, God moved into the neighborhood. And in him, in Jesus, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's who this Jesus is. And He is also the only way to get to the Father. Notice if we look back up in verse 27, what He says, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to Him. You cannot know God, you cannot come to God, you cannot worship God unless you come to Christ, the God-man. Come to Me. It's an invitation to a person. We also see that it's an exclusive invitation. And by exclusive, I mean not in its offer. We'll see that in a moment. The offer is to all, but in its object. In other words, it's come to me only. Not me and. Right? It's, it's not Jesus and whatever. It's Jesus only as the object of our faith. We, when we were uh, driving this week, we break up our drive. It's 1,100 miles with six kids. I'm still a Christian. We're still married. Praise the Lord. Um, we do about halfway. We get to Virginia. So we stayed in Staunton, Virginia. And we went to, for dinner, we went to Cracker Barrel, as one does when you come back to the South. And just by the way, a side note, after being in New England for six years, Cracker Barrel is such a strange cultural phenomenon. I mean, I can buy like a coffee cup with a Bible verse on it, a country record, and a biscuit all in the same place. So anyways, we're waiting for our, our, our table. This is Monday night, and I'm looking in the store, because there's a store with all these things, and the kids are looking around, and I, and I see this shirt that says, Sundays are for Jesus and football. And my first thought is, we're not in New England anymore, right? And by the way, if you own this shirt, I'm, I'm sorry, but, um, but that's sort of the culture we're in, right? And if you think about, how silly is that? The eternal king of the universe, first he gets one day a week. Sundays are for Jesus. And, not just Jesus, but Jesus and football. It's, listen, we can all take football off that shirt and put our own things in there, right? The point is not that those things are, are wrong. The point is, we have brought Jesus down to this, this level where we, we put him on par with other things. And we think, well, yeah, it's Jesus and something else. As if grown men playing with a ball competes with the king of the universe. He says, no, come to me and come to me only. You can't come to Jesus and maintain life as is. You can't come to Jesus as one path to many gods. So if the football t-shirt is your context, that type of thinking, well, Jesus is a great option that's my context. That's great that you're a Christian. Jesus is, is one, one way you can get to, to God. I'm going to respect your opinion, but there's all sorts of ways we can get to God. It's No, no, no. It's an exclusive call to come to Him and Him only. He's the object of our faith. In fact, Jesus says in another passage in Luke 14, 33, 
So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then we see that this invitation to come to me is also perpetual. So it's to a person, it's exclusive in its object, and it's a perpetual call. I think this is a danger for many of us. I'm guessing if you've grown up around church, you're probably familiar with this, this passage. You've heard it before. It's a very popular one. And the easy thing to do is if, if you are a Christian or if you've been around the church is to say, oh yeah, come to me. I already did that, right? I did that back when I became a Christian. And listen, that's absolutely true. And what Jesus is not saying here is that you have to come to me for salvation every day. That's not what he's saying. But he is telling us, whether we've been following Jesus for five days or 50 years, that we must continually come to him in faith for rest. You see, our our world kind of thinks of, of people in two different categories. There's good people and then there's bad people. Everybody's category is is different on who falls in those, but the the Bible explains it quite differently. There there are two types of people, but they're all bad, and there are, the Bible calls them sinners, and there are unredeemed sinners who need to come to Jesus in faith for the first time and trust in Him, and then there are redeemed sinners who who have come to him, but need to continually come to him in faith because we fall forward and fail every day. We drift away from the well of living water. So if you're like me, don't read a passage like this that may be familiar and say, oh yeah, that's so good. I have this non-Christian friend who needs to hear this. You may, but you and I need to hear it just as much. We need to come to Jesus perpetually. I love what Jesus says of the woman at the well in John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But let's be honest. If you were to evaluate your own spiritual life over the last week or so, wouldn't you say there are moments where you've become spiritually dehydrated? Have you ever been dehydrated before physically? You know how that works. You, you're not drinking enough water, and then oftentimes you realize too late you haven't drank enough water, and then you, if you've ever been really bad dehydrated, maybe you're sick or something, then you've got to go and get the IV in, right? Some of us are like that right now. We need the IV of living water. We've been going through the motions. We've been spiritually dehydrated, and we have drifted away from the well, and this is Jesus calling not just people who have yet to believe in him, but even those who follow him to come again and drink. And come to him continually. That's the invitation. Come to me. Second, the recipients. Still in verse 28. Who, who, receive, who receives this invitation? All who labor and are heavy laden. So this invitation is to all. The free offer of the gospel is to all. But notice that only those who labor and are heavy laden, and only those who are aware of their weakness can receive it. And friends, this is the unique message of Christianity. I'm sure you've heard of the mountain illustration. You know, God's at the top of the mountain, and there's all sorts of different paths that represent other philosophies and religions, and you can just sort of go up the mountain, and it doesn't really matter what path you follow. As long as you go up the mountain, you'll get there. 
Jesus blows that idea out of the water here. So does the whole Bible. It says, listen, not, not only can, is, is, there's only one path to the top of the mountain, and it doesn't go upward because you're dead at the bottom. It's a one-way road. Jesus comes down the mountain. Because you and I have labored under our own righteousness. We have tried in our own strength to earn God's favor. We've tried to climb up the mountain, but we've made it maybe five feet and tumbled back down. And so every other religion, do you realize this? Every other religion or philosophy of man says, come and labor some more and maybe you'll make it. And Jesus says, no, 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 I see you. I know you have labored. You have tried in your own strength. You're anxious. You're tired. It's time to recognize how weak you are. The offer of the gospel is for you. So we have to ask ourselves this question this morning. What What burdens are you laboring under right now? What are the things that you have in your life that you would say, yes, that is making me heavy laden? It seems that this usually works out in in one of two ways for people. What we could call either legalism, that is trying to earn God's grace by being good and obeying the law of God. That's the context of the Gospel of Matthew, as we'll see in a moment. It's the context of Jesus' hearers as they hear the false teachers. Maybe that's you. That's the burden you're, you're bearing right now. And the other side of that is what we could call license, or the, the fancy word is antinomianism, anti-law. So if legalism is I'm going to, to obey God's law so that I can get to the top of that mountain, License says, I'm going to ignore God's law because it's too heavy for me, and I'm just going to pursue sin. And here's what's interesting about both of those. Both are attempts to labor in your own self-sufficiency to try and find what only Jesus can give. So the, the temptation here is to say, oh man, he's right. I am heavy laden. I have messed up. I'm going to try harder tomorrow. Or the other side to say, man, that's true. I, I am weary and, and heavy laden. I don't want to bear this burden anymore. So I'm just going to go live my own life and not pursue God. Both of those are burdens to bear. And so what, what is the answer? What is the answer that Jesus gives? Friends, the answer is weakness. Recognize your weakness. Jesus uses this illustration back at, uh, up in verse 25. Look up a few verses. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Pause. Read strong and prideful of this world. That's not good, wise, and understanding. That's worldly wisdom and understanding. And he goes on, you've revealed them to, and what's the picture he uses? Little children. And I love this, because the language here is not like 16 and under, 12 and under. The language here is toddler. That's who God has revealed this to. And toddlers are what? They are so needy. I have one right now. They cannot do anything without their parents. They can't eat without their parents. They pitch fits over the smallest things. They are completely and totally and utterly dependent upon mom and dad. And Jesus says, that's what you must become like. That's what you must recognize in yourself, that you are weak, you are burdened, you are heavy laden. He puts it this way in Matthew 
18, verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, repent, and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because until you do that, you still think you have something to contribute to your own salvation. Instead of recognizing that you are in total need, burdened and heavy laden, in need of Christ. A few weeks ago, I think three weeks ago this Sunday, I believe, we celebrated 4th of July. And this is, a, this is a big ordeal in Boston, as you can imagine. So a guy dresses up in like 1700s garb. They gather around the state house right where the Boston massacre happened. And he comes out and he reads early in the morning uh, the Declaration of Independence. And what is the Declaration of Independence, right? It's, it's the world's most popular breakup letter. That's what it is. It's, it's America saying, listen, this is not working out. You're a little heavy-handed. It's time for us to see other people, right? And we're, we're, we're done. Jesus is calling us here to do the exact opposite of that. He, he's calling us not to declare independence, but utter dependence upon Christ and Christ alone for our salvation, to remove our burdens. You cannot do it. You've tried to do it and failed. You are heavy laden. And unless you humble yourself and recognize it, you will not be able to receive what Jesus is offering here. Now, you may object. You may say, okay, well, wait a second, Kevin. You, you don't know me. I have denied Jesus so many times. I don't know that I could come to him again. Well, friends, so did Peter. Or you may say, I, I hear what you're saying. Come to him in faith. I am heavy laden, but... I, I have doubted God my entire Christian life. Friend, the greatest Christian who has ever lived at the beginning of this chapter is doubting Jesus. Or you may say, I pursued the pleasures of sin my entire life. I have scorned God, and now you're saying I can come to him. I don't think I can. Friends, a thief on the cross did the exact same thing. And moments before he died, he was saved. Or you may say, listen, I, I, I'm intellectual. I'm not sure I understand all these claims of, of Jesus. Well, friend, neither did Nicodemus when he came to Jesus in, in the middle of the night. What do all of these have in common with us? Christ met them in their weakness. And so we must recognize that we are heavy laden and humble ourselves like children before we can receive the offer. Number three, what is this offer? Still in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and here's the offer. I will give you rest. Rest. Now notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will fix all of your difficult circumstances. I will make sure there's no hardship in your life. I've already made a prosperity gospel joke earlier, but, but that's what comes to mind, right? This idea that has started in America, that if you follow Jesus, he will make you healthy, wealthy, and, and rich. Things won't go poorly for you, and if they do go poorly for you, you're not having enough faith. And friends, it's easy for me, it's easy for us to pick on like those, those preachers on TV, and we can probably think of names and books and things like that, but we also have to look at our own hearts, because anytime we grumble at God when things don't go our way, we are believing the same lie. 
We're believing that if I come to Jesus, he's going to make life easy for me. And he hasn't, so now I'm upset. And so we too need to evaluate our own hearts and hear what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying, I will give you ease. He's saying, I will give you rest. And there is an important difference. Jesus offers something so much better than an easy life. He promises us in him rest for our souls verse 29, in the midst of the chaos. He gives you something you can't get anywhere else. When the cancer diagnosis comes, when the car accident happens, when the job is gone, when all of those burdens that would crush other people weigh down on you, in Christ you have a deep and abiding soul rest that knows Christ will take care, Christ is enough. That's the offer here. I will give you rest. And I love this. I've read this passage hundreds of times since I've been a Christian. But I didn't notice this until G. Campbell Morgan pointed this out to me. He, used, he, he says the actual language here is not, I will give you rest, which is you can come to Jesus and he'll show you where you can rest. It's actually, I will rest you. I will make you to rest. Morgan says this is the motherly love of Jesus on display. Think of that frantic toddler. Mom grabs him or her and pulls them close and calms them down. Jesus says, that's what I will give to your souls if you come to me. Then he uses this other illustration. Look at verse 29. He says, I will give you rest. Into verse 28, then he says, take my yoke upon you. Okay, so he's replacing something. He's going to remove a burden He's going to, and he's going to put a new one on. Now, what is a yoke? It's a, it's a crossbar, a wooden crossbar that would join two animals, usually oxen. It would pull carts. It would pull things for agricultural purposes. But also, in this time, it was common, a common metaphor for God's law. And so we read in Matthew chapter 23. This is where we get some more context about what Jesus' hearers were experiencing. Matthew 23, verse 4 says, They, he's talking about false teachers, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, they tie up heavy burdens, that's yoke language, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Jesus is saying, I'm not like that. I'm actually removing that yoke, I'm removing that burden, and I'm putting something else. So friend, what burdens need to be removed for you? What burdens has Christ removed for us? He's removed the, the burden of bearing our own weight of guilt and shame by bearing it for us on the cross. The burden of trying to work off our, our sin debt because He's paid our debt. The burden of, if you're a control freak like me, trying to control everything in your life and getting anxious when it doesn't go your way. Jesus bears that burden because, as Hebrews 1 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or maybe it's anxiety about money. Well, Jesus is your provision and your provider. Maybe it's vainly seeking joy in the sinful pleasures of this world. Friend, he is your joy. Christ removes these burdens for us. But we have to talk about how, because this text doesn't tell us how. This is where I want to come back to for a moment, the Pilgrim's Progress. There's some debate about the Pilgrim's Progress. 
Uh, Charles Spurgeon read the book a hundred times, which is a lot, uh, too many. Read some other books, guy. But he, he, this is his one quibble with the Pilgrim's Progress. And if you're a Puritan nerd like me, let's talk after and see what you think. If we can't find the answer, we'll ask John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon in heaven. So on this journey, Pilgrim's carrying this pack. And he enters the narrow gate. And that represents beginning a life of salvation. But there's one thing that's strange about this. When he enters the gate, the pack doesn't come off. He's still carrying the burden. So then there's this question of, and this is still early on in the book, okay, when does pilgrim, when does Christian's pack fall off? When does he lose the burden? And he loses the burden when he comes to the cross of Calvary. The burden falls off his back and rolls down the hill. Listen to what Christian says in the book. He says, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anything ease the grief that I was in till I came here. What a place this is. Is this place the beginning of my bliss? Is this where the burden falls off from my back? Is this where the ropes that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed grave, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. And you know what I love about it? It breaks off of his back and it falls down and it rolls right into the empty tomb. It's an awesome scene. But here's the question. What is Bunyan trying to communicate here? Why didn't his pack fall off? Why didn't the burden fall off at the beginning of his journey when he first became a Christian? And here's my take. I think Bunyan is telling us his own story, and I think he's telling a story that each of us can relate to. When we come to Christ, yes, we believe we cannot be saved without the cross. Christ has paid for our sin debt. We receive the forgiveness of sins. But, like Christian in this story, it takes a growing understanding and application of the cross of Jesus Christ to every area of our life, day in and day out, to understand just how Christ removes those burdens. That's what happens to Christian. And many of you can tell me these stories. You've been in churches, you've you've known Christ for a long time, but then something happened and you started seeing how the life and death and resurrection of Jesus were not just the entrance to the kingdom, but they apply to every area of your life. Your work life, your parenting, your career, everything, your family life, your relationships in the church, and you start applying the gospel in every area of those, in all of those areas, and what happens? The ropes of those burdens start snapping off. Friends, that's what happens to Christian, and that's what happens to us. Our burdens cannot be removed except by Christ on the cross bearing the burden for us. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. I love the hymn, How Great Thou Art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. On the cross of Jesus Christ, he bears the burden of our sin that we might then receive the the light and easy yoke of his righteousness. 
And notice this, he doesn't just remove the yoke, he gives us a new one. Friends, there's work for us to do. Don't mishear this. Just because we're resting in Christ doesn't mean there's not work to do. We have plenty of work to do. Our neighbors and communities are dying apart from Christ. They need us to go preach the gospel to them. We have the work of holiness to pursue because, as Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see God. There is work for us to do. We have to love others and serve our churches and pray and study the word. But because Christ has removed the ultimate burden, those commands are light and easy. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 3, his commands are not burdensome because we're no longer working for salvation. We're working from salvation provided for us on the cross. So then lastly, what's the motivation of all this? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why would Jesus give this gracious offer? We read it's because it's at the core of who he is to weak sinners like us. Verse 29, take my yoke upon me and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is who Jesus is. This is who the crucified, resurrected, ascended, embodied God-man Jesus Christ right now is to repentant sinners. It's not like you just caught him on a good day. He got a good night's sleep, so he's feeling generous. So he's saying, hey, listen, I'm pretty gentle and lowly today. I've had my coffee. It's all good. No, this is who he is continually to us. One good exercise in the next couple weeks for you would be to read the Gospels and note every time you see Jesus' compassion on display. And who receives that compassion? I don't know if it's still one of his favorite Greek words, but the, the Greek word for compassion, I know Ken loves it, is splagnizomai, right? And it means, it's, it's such a great word. It describes our Savior. He's moved to the point of physically feeling it in his gut toward us, toward weak sinners like us. Think of John 11 when his friend Lazarus dies and is laying in the tomb. He could have shrugged his shoulders and said, I'm going to raise him, it's no problem. But what does he do? He weeps because sin leads to death of those he loves. Or consider Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, just a few verses before. He is called, as if it's a bad thing, a friend of sinners, a title which he gladly owns. Or Hebrews 4, 15, we're told he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 12, 2, that, that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him to save sinners like us. Or Hebrews 5, 2, that says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. That's you and I. Or 1 John 2.1, when we sin, he is our advocate with the Father. Friends, he doesn't make this offer to us begrudgingly. Listen, I know you guys have messed up for the 10 millionth time, but I'm Jesus. This is who I'm supposed to be, so you can come to me if you want. No, his heart is bent toward us. Now, yes, he will judge the wicked. Let's make sure we have a biblical picture of Jesus here. Some of us, when we hear this gentle, lowly stuff, we might say it sounds a little too squishy. Well, Jesus was very clear. He will judge the wicked in verse 22. It'll be worse for them who reject Christ 
than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment is coming, but to the weak, humble, repentant sinners who cling to him, no matter what they've done this morning or last night, he will always be gentle and lowly and merciful. Friends, even his discipline of us comes from his gentle and lowly heart. Just as a side note, I'm sure some of you have read this book. Dane Ortland has written a great book diving into this called Gentle and Lowly. Uh, I, I tricked some people into our church to reading it. I was like, hey, this is a new book. It's really good. Let's read it together. And they were like, this is all about the Puritans. You just tricked us into reading Puritans. And I'm like, yes, I did. But, but it's a, a wonderful book-length, uh, uh, in-depth dive into this verse. This is who he is towards us. And so then what are we then to take away from this. Well, if you notice, if you read back through those three verses, there's really three commands here that come under two categories. Jesus says, come, take, and learn. And I think those first two can be under one heading. Come and take means to believe in him. That is the primary application of this text. Whether it's for the first time, those of you who do not know Jesus, whether you've yet to recognize that you cannot pay for your sin, And for those who believe, Christ has paid for it on the cross, defeated it by his victorious grave. Come and take for the first time or for the 10,000th time. Those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long time but need to return to the well. That's the first thing he calls us to do. But then he tells us to learn from him. You notice that? He's not just saying, Brothers and sisters, this is who I am to you. He's saying, I want you, my people, to learn this gentleness and this lowliness of heart and compassion and mercy toward others so that you can go out to your communities and live likewise. Because, brothers and sisters, there is something supernaturally attractive about God's people enduring all the hardships of life with a a deep and abiding joy, a soul rest, a gentleness and lowliness and a humility. It's attractive. And some of you, how Charles Spurgeon applied this to his congregation. He worked this out in a long quote, but I think it's very helpful for us. What does it mean to have a lowly heart? Spurgeon says, first it means we're committed to his glory. He says, the lowly heart says, not my will, but thine be done. Let God be glorified in me. It shall be all that I ask. Rich, poor, sick, or in health, it's all the same to me. If God, the great one, has the glory, what matters where such a little one as I am to be placed? It also means to be content in all circumstances. He goes on, the lowly spirit doesn't seek after great things for itself. It learns in whatever state it is therewith to be content. If it be poor, never mind, says the lowly one. I never aspired to be rich. Among the great ones of this earth, I never desired to shine. If it be denied honor, the humble spirit says, I never asked for earthly glory. I seek not mine own, but his that sent me. Why should I be honored, a poor worm like me, if nobody speaks a good word of me, if I get Christ to say, well done, good and faithful servant, that is enough. And lastly, he applies it to delighting in eternal pleasures. And if the lowly heart, he says, have little worldly pleasure, he says, this is not my place for pleasure. I deserve eternal pain. And if I do not have pleasures here, 
I shall have them hereafter. I am well content to abide my time. Our blessed Lord was always of that lowly spirit. Brothers and sisters, may we be likewise. When we come to Christ, we find an eternal, deep, abiding rest for our souls. So let's come to him. Let's take and let's learn together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that our coming to you is not dependent upon yesterday's performance or upon this morning's failures, but is solely by your grace. God, we pray for your Spirit's help in continually applying the work of the cross to every area of our life, to every burden we bear, that we would glory in our Redeemer, whom you put forth to bear our sins on his shoulders on the cross, that in exchange we may may receive the light and easy yoke of his righteousness. God, I pray for this church that I love so dearly that they would learn from you. That they would be gentle and lowly and winsome and Christ-centered and inviting and on mission because they are overjoyed at the work that you have done for them in Christ. God, we love you, we praise you. May you receive all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.